All right, I am going to go ahead and get started. I've, I've been merciful. So, um, we'll go ahead and start diving into this particular Sunday school. Fair warning, uh, there were some hiccups with this one. Um, uh, nothing bad, just... Um, just forgive me if my thoughts seem to. I'll try my best. I'll try my best to do that. In fact, uh, in fact, we can we can go ahead and get started by uh, talking about so what I've already written. So, if you've noticed, like kind of the way that we've approached the subject is first by introducing theology proper, which is everybody clear on what that means? I know it's, maybe it's not used as much. Yeah, so doctrine of God or God, if you God in Himself, as we talk about God as God, um, that's what we would mean by theology proper. So we've talked about that to kind of set the foundation for our Christology, right? Um, are you filming me? No, I took a picture. Oh, you like me? That does make me nervous. You don't consent to being filmed? We can do a Facebook live. It's not that I could, well, I don't know about that. Um, uh, so then our Christology, and we've talked a lot so far about uh, the subpoint A there, the hypostatic union. And this, this particular Sunday school, this lesson will be, I'm hoping, the last part of that. And we'll actually kind of go into part B here today, so, which has to do with the hypostatic union. And I'll explain what all that means. Um, but after that, we, with our Christology, we're going to go into part C. And this is just to remind us of kind of how tentatively I'm thinking about this. Uh, and then uh, the work in mediatorship of Christ and how all this stuff before is necessary and has influenced the way that we think about it. Uh, and then the Eucharist, which I think is a wonderful word that we should take back from the Roman Catholics. Um, just means, you know, the Lord's Supper. So, and how all this that we've talked about so far, uh, really, uh, if you if you haven't started to see anything, like, all this is interwoven. You can't really, if, have you had, I, I guess I would ask, have you had maybe a little bit of trouble keeping the pieces together? I mean, I mean, not necessarily trouble, but you see that there are a lot of uh, pieces to um, all this, Right? all that we've been talking about, hopefully. Um, so the point is, is that it all builds on each other and it's interwoven. Um, uh, so with that being said, uh, that's why we've spent all this time in this, uh, in this part talking about the inarca- incarnation, because uh, I hope have you've seen already that um, how, we, how we understand it or how we think about it is going to have profound implications down the road uh, on how we think about, say, Part C, and especially... Um, uh, number number three there too, um, so uh, so. But before we before we actually go into a lot of or at least part three of the incar- uh, part three of incarnation or hypostatic union, uh, I want us to um, read from the Word. Uh, so if you want to turn to Hebrews chapter two, so um, Hebrews chapter two, and we'll just briefly touch on a little bit about. Um, about this passage of verses 14 through 17. 
uh, and we'll kind of go from there. So we'll ask the Lord to bless our time thereafter, and we'll start to sort of get into get into what we're going to talk about today. So again, forgive me if I kind of seem everywhere on this. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 2, um, verses 14 through 17. So, uh, 14 through 17, here we go. Okay, so, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For surely he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that we can gather here today. Lord, we thank you that we can just simply read your word. Lord, that we can uh, have an understanding as we think together of what it means, what its implications are for us. And Lord, as we explore this word, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come and um, enlighten us, illumine these things for us so that we can have a, a right understanding of the person of Christ. Lord, we We ask that you would um, help us to think appropriately, help us to think deeply, and Lord, most of all, Lord, that we would be um, that we would be in concordance with the scriptures uh, as we do so. Lord, keep me from error. Lord, um, grant me mercy. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare us for edification through this to go into worship. We love you and thank you for your Sabbath. In your name, Amen. Okay, so, uh, you know, so briefly about this passage, uh, I think it, it, and and I'm building on what we've talked about already, so it becomes, it becomes kind of obvious, um, and I'm kind of alluding to the mediatorship of Christ, um, uh, I think here, Uh, but we've said before, and as we've talked about with the hypostatic union so far, um, it is, it is a theological necessity, as we kind of touched on uh, previously, that here being assumed, if you read the first chapter of Hebrews, that Christ's divinity is already pretty much established. But it's also important as the text moves forward that we acknowledge that it is just as significant that he be made like the people whom he's redeeming. Okay, So that means, as we see here, that this person of Christ must have those two natures in order to do so. I know we've exhausted this issue, but I can't say it enough because it's a marvelous truth. In order to be our Redeemer, where it says He is a faithful high priest to make reconciliation for the sins of His people, He must have equally, or I, which I should say, it is, it is necessarily that He be both. It is equally as important that He be both and not just one or the other. Okay. So in order to redeem his people, he must be the person in the unity of Christ, having two natures in order to redeem his people. And this is really, again, one of the mysteries and the most marvelous things about, I think, all of this. Um, So with that little bit of preachiness, um, I wanted to kind of uh, dive into uh, what we're going to talk about today. So really the question of today, so like you could think of this as, I think, part three of the hypostatic union. 
And again, I already talked about what was up on the board. Um, but the question today is, so, so we've already talked about the two natures of Christ, and we've already talked about sort of the how, the divine and the human in the person of Christ. But what we want to know today is, 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 is sort of another how. Like, how do those natures, especially during his inter-adventitial period, the period where he, he's here on earth, the period of his incarnation, how do these um, natures, insofar as we can, we can draw from the text and reason through it, how do they interact with one another? And I think that that's an important question that will be significant for, again, our Christology down the road, especially when it comes to uh, the Lord's Supper. So, with that, any questions so far? Everybody kind of called up? Okay. <laughs> Okay, I like hearing that. Um, so I, I, I will say again, I've, I've written these things shorter, so if you don't ask questions this time, it's going to be like a 20-minute lesson. So I've kind of planned for questions. Um, so uh, last week, so, so to summarize, and I think it's important, I try to refrain from summarizing everything, every single lesson, but I think in these particular cases it's really helpful. Um, we further distinguish what we would call a nature versus a person, right? So I think that we have that down. Do I need to write this on the board again? Um, I'm going to because everybody seems to like the board, probably except for me. Um, so everybody have this down? It's too late. All right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the basic takeaway, as we said before, and we already discussed the implications here, um, uh, you know, we say person, um, but we don't mean by that uh, nature, right? I know. I'm hoping. I'm hoping by now that 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 I'm I'm beating the perished horse, um, but I'm hoping by now that we know that 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 that's kind of that's one of the big things in order to distinguish what we're talking about properly without you know kind of diving headlong into some some sort of heresy of, of, of some nature. Um, but, but we made that distinction and how it was important to our Christology. So we further, last week, we talked about Philippians 2, uh, 6 through 8 mainly. Um, and we talked about that to actually, I think, establish our position on the sort of the how of the hypostatic union. So, so far, we've talked about the first lesson, you know, the what of it, that it is, and then sort of the how how, how, how Christ assumes a human nature, or how the second person of the Trinity assumes a human nature, um, and how that's to be understood. So we concluded from that, we concluded from that passage, and I think by drawing that out of the text, uh, showing that there were at least three possibilities in which we could speak of the incarnation, right? You guys remember these? For those who were here, did you, did you have an opportunity to listen to that Sunday school? Maybe, if not... I mean, I'm going to briefly go over it again. But so, so basically, we showed that there are basically three options in which we could speak of the incarnation or how Christ assumes a human nature. So the first thing I'd like us to do, however, is sort of set the context of the historical understanding, which a lot can be drawn from this, and I'll, and I'll try to go into a little bit of it. But the historical understanding regarding the debate of how the hypostatic union is to be understood. So 
Have we all heard of the Chalcedonian definition or the symbol of Chalcedon? Okay, well, I'm about to read it to you. So this is circa 451 A.D., Lots of uh, Christological controversies going on then. And so this is written, this is written at, the, um, at the Council of Chalcedon, or shortly thereafter. Um, and uh, it says this, and that's important to keep this in our minds, I think, when we're going forward to discuss these uh, hypostatic views and also when we start talking about the communicado idiomatum, which, again, I'll explain what that means in a minute. Um, it says this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in God, Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. Again, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the Son, and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And if you want a shorter sort of... um, Explication of that, just look at chapter 8, paragraph 2 of our confession, and you'll see almost verbatim some of that language there. So, now, keeping that in mind, we talked about three views, three views of how the incarnation occurs. So, does anybody remember, what did I do with this? Okay, does anybody remember what they were? Canonic view. Yeah, I don't... Is there a better one? Uh, additive? Yeah, additive. Uh, so what does canonic mean? Just so we're still... Divestative. Divestative, so subtraction. I think Brad mentioned this last week. I think that's a good... So you could think subtractive view. Um, not lay aside any right. Okay. All right. So... So, so what we mean here is, with this view, we mean that, um, you know, we're talking about, especially in Philippians 2, 6 through 7, that the emptying means or assumes emptying of some sort of divinity, right? Okay. So, divinity emptied, and there are degrees of this, um, uh, and we concluded that that violated a lot of things. Do you, anybody remember what, why, why that's um, untenable? Universe would collapse. There's, um, uh, yeah, I mean, and as far as our salvation goes, 
uh, we're doomed. I think that's perfect. I had forgotten I said that. Um, so the second view, but and, and so we agreed here. We agreed here that 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 I think most of us, if not all of us here, would say that that's yeah that's this is not going to work. Um, but then there was the I, I put augmentative, but just additive view. Uh, and I did say that's like this view isn't wrong per se, um, but that I think, as we'll see, or as we saw, that there is a better way to say it. Um, so, what do we say about this view? It's because of, because uh, we're creatures, I would say, and we think of additive as like taking on, having to, almost implying that uh, he's incomplete or that he uh, needs to perfect himself in some way by taking on that. And uh, I think uh, I remember Hal gave a great illustration of that God is perfect. There are he's he's just perfection, so he can't technically add anything to himself. So he's only giving, there was the, the example, if you don't remember, of laying the hand on the desk. For us, we have a new relationship with the desk, all right? But for God, he only gives and does not take anything from the desk. So like while we're affected by the desk, he is not. Does that make sense? There's no rebounding effect. Yeah. Said, right. He only and so, the, and the ultimate reason that we said because of that, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, um, or one of the reasons that we said that that's an, that we that that could be an issue, is because we don't want to give the impression that there's some kind of change in God um, from te- from taking on Himself a human nature. Okay, that makes sense. That's kind of the that's a, a huge oversimplification, but um, but that's that's the gist of it. Um, and again, like I said, not, not unorthodox. Um, like I said, I just think there's better language out there. So what was the third option that we said? Terminative, yeah, terminative view. Um, that, uh, as I write lower, my handwriting becomes sloppier. Um, terminative. So what did we say that that means? I know most of you were here last week. The right one? <laughs> the right one? Yeah, I, mean, I appreciate that. But. Perfect. No, and that's exactly what, I mean, that's almost verbatim what I had written down, um, you know, last week and this week. So, yeah, the divine person of the Son gives personhood, so the divine person gives personhood to the human nature that he assumes. Okay, so what I would say about this is that, and by the way, I'll just reiterate this, when we say terminative, we mean brings to completion. You know, so not, again, that destruction or something like that. I mean, I'm hoping we see that, but... In other words, um, the person of the Son terminates the human nature. So, lifts it up and brings it to completion. Make sense so far? 
Okay. So, I would say further about this. The person of Christ being the pre-existent pre-existent hypostatic existence of the eternal Son. I don't know if I'm going to write that twice. Um, The person of the Son is not brought into being by the incarnation, but rather, in this view, is the active subject in the assumption of the human nature. Okay? So you remember our distinction between personhood or person and nature. That's what's being assumed here if we make that distinction. Therefore, the person of Christ is one with the Godhead, or as the scripture says, one with the Father in many places, because the divine person which sustains the humanity is consubstantial with the Father. Follow me? Okay. That is, he is of the same essence. And here's, here's the important part of this view. Like, so, hypostatic union, you know, pin this, put a star by it. The humanity of Christ, the humanity of Christ could never exist without being joined to the divinity. Okay? The humanity of Christ, the person of Christ, could never exist without being joined to the, human, to, uh, to the divinity and not the other way around. Okay? The human nature is, in Christ, uniquely owned, sustained, and supported by the logos of the very word of God. Okay? These, these aren't my words, by the way. I'm quoting other people. So, um, I'm, not, I'm not this smart. Um, now, we said that the terminative view is the best way to look at the how of the portion of the hypostatic union. So, I think that we've covered, covered that. We're assuming that that's the best way. And we showed that one of the primary reasons, again, for its usefulness is what we said before, that it avoids some of the pitfalls that might occur with some of the other views, okay? All right? And we showed that uh, it basically, uh, for our purposes, avoids any change or alteration in the deity of Christ. Remember, what we said before is that anything we've said about God so far, we can't say in contradiction of Christ, okay? If we want to maintain the unity of the person, all right? However... I want to introduce, there are far less questions today, and this is going to be over really quickly. Okay, it's coming then. It's coming then. Okay, so I want to introduce some more reasons, though, as to why the term of you must be taken if we're going to read, I think, the Scriptures faithfully and by consequent have a robust and right view of the Lord's Supper later on. Okay, so this is going to be important, especially if you don't want to be Lutheran. Um, no, no offense against, against the Lutherans that might listen to this later. Um, first, we want to affirm, of course, the Chalcedonian formula, and we do, that we read a few minutes ago. Yet at the same time, we want to explicate what we mean when we talk about, especially in those phrases that we read, like, uh, where was it? The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. What does that mean? So, 
we want our firm chalcedon, but we also want to know and explicate the meaning of the relationship between the natures, and that's where we're going. Okay, so this is where the, the, the new stuff in the lesson, I, I guess, starts to come in. Um, now, we've already, again, alluded to the how of the hypostatic union, but we want to, at this point, insofar as we can, understand what I said before when we say the the communicatio idiomatum, and that's just a fancy Latin phrase that means the communication of the properties or the communication of the natures, okay, and how we understand that. So when we say, when you hear that word, um, we just mean how do the natures relate to one another, how do the natures relate in the person of Christ, okay? So I'm just trying to give you some vocabulary too, you know, and make myself look really smart, even though I'm not. Um, so, what I mean. Okay, so what I mean. Again, this is where, the, again, the communication of the natures just means in what way do they relate. And I think, and I only have two of them, but there, I think there are more, and again, I'm oversimplifying. There are at least two ways to think of how the natures relate, which I'll, um, I'll write on the board in a minute. Um, but first, I think we need to just quickly say one more thing about what a nature is, just so that as we go into this, again, I know everybody's going to be tired of me talking about this, but it's, um, it's so important what a nature is. So let me, uh, let me use my handy-dandy... Actually, starting to get used to this, which is weird for me. Okay, so remember, the nature is what the nature. Well, I actually just gave it away. Um, nature is, well, at least in our context, I, I promise. I, what 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 is what is the definition of Nature. When we said that, yeah. Okay. What? All right. So it's the what of the thing. Further, and this is, I think, where it becomes pretty important, and where our view is going to go. It's irreducible in order to make the thing what it is. Okay. So, an example. Uh, humanness or humanity. Just give me some, give me some essential features that you can think of of what makes a human the thing that it is. Body and soul. Okay, body and soul. I would more so, just as a caveat to that, I would. I would say that humanity is more this. This is more related to the person that would be an instantiation of humanity. But for our purposes, I think, that's, I think this is fine. Um, but just a clarification. So if we're talking about the soul, we're really talking about what makes a human being or humanity or a particular person like Seth a human. So, any, so, so any, anything you want to say about the soul that would say is essential. A reason. 
it's a reason, it's a rational, rational or reasonable soul. And no, by, we're, not, we're by no means going to be exhaustive. I'm just getting some. Okay, what else? Anything else? Yeah, moral. Okay, that's excellent. I think that has a lot to do with rationality too. Um, and so in all these things, we have um, rational intellects too, right? Um, and from that, will, not to say that animals and other things don't have will or intellects, but we, that's the important key there, what John said, rational, rational. Um, anything that you would want to predicate of that, okay, that's the point. So if I took even one of these things away, if our definition holds, like rational especially, is that human? Yeah, yeah. You have something, but it's not human. Yep. That's a great question. Um, because they're still image bearers. Yeah, so the capacity for rationality, it still exists. Okay. Um, but, it, but the exercise of that power is something that you would distinguish. Because when you track rationality, I think basically what you end up with is your average toddler or middle schooler. Yeah, well, <laughs> well again... That's why I further qualify. The capacity for rationality is still there. Um, but whether or not one uses that is... Um, well, <laughs> rationality is in rare supply. Yeah, 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 it's there. Everybody has the capacity for it. Um, whether or not it's used is another, um, is another debate. Also, even when, the, when a person's body, they've died, their soul still is rational. Exactly. Yep. The fact, like, the fact that someone's reasoning poorly still means they're reasoning. Like, yeah. Exactly. So, is is your ability or how much you actually use of each of these types, these these aspects of the soul, isn't that more toward the exercise, the action part, the person part? Yeah. Exactly. Can, can I push back just a little bit on the? Because you said we're more of a soul, and, mm-hmm. and I'm not—I don't think you're, you're saying anything that's not necessarily, as far as emphasis, wrong on that. But we want to be very careful not to sound gnostic about the body. And for example, my dad is in a cult, and when I talk about us being human, he says, "No, we are souls," and and very much mm-hmm. he emphasizes the body. And, and so, I mean, it is our body that will be resurrected along with, you know, and, and reunited with our soul and, and all. Yeah, and I've made this clear in previous um, uh, previous lessons that uh, we're not, this isn't the same as Platonism or something like that, where we're saying that our souls are the who as well. Yeah, so, I, mean, I, I definitely don't want to learn my dad goes. I mean, he's like, I'm a spark of the divine. I'm like, yes, yeah, whatever. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I guess the soul is what distinguishes us from animals because yeah. like other mammals, I guess bodies are kind of yeah. A- a- animal. I mean, I guess my pushback would be animals have bodies too, yeah. 
no, they don't look like human bodies. Um, but the distinction, I'll point that out because the distinction has to be made. The whatness of the animal is in the soul and not necessarily the body because you could, for example, I could lose a hand or a cheetah could lose a leg and still be a cheetah. Um, that's that. That's the distinction that we're trying yeah, to. But yeah, I understand it, it, it's human soul that makes us human beings, but we're body and soul. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. That's that, that, that's not what's being um, and, and, debated. And this is good, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. No. Again, that's not that's not what's being and I debated. Don't think you were saying it was, and I just given where my dad is, I'm a little sensitive and just want to kind of just highlight. Oh sure. Yeah. No. That's that's good. Yeah, and like like we said before, go ahead. I think something that can help us uh, kind of connect this back to some spiritual passages. When you think of the full, especially in that Hebrew Old Testament, um, someone who doesn't use their capacity for rationality, what are they often compared to? Animals, Nebuchadnezzar, he goes grazing in the field. That's an excellent point. Yeah. There that can help kind of get us back into the scriptures of understanding when you're not moral, when you're not. Uh, reasoning as a true image bearer, you behave as a beast. God counts you as a beast. Yeah. Uh, and so it shows right. the importance of the rationality of our soul. Yeah. That we communicate uh, as image bearers via our rational souls. That's right. why we kind of put it as a um, sitting non walk, you know, thank you, San Francisco. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, and like I said before, it doesn't mean that um, the whole man is the soul. Yeah. Yes? Since you have a little extra time built in, this is a slight tangent that I've been thinking about this the whole time. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good time to bring it up. Listening to it, and some of the references you made specifically have been uh, the second person, Christ, uh-huh. God, relationship. Mm-hmm. Sometimes consubstantial with the Father. Mm-hmm. There's always, it seems like, in my whole life, almost a neglect of one person. Mm-hmm. And it seems a little bit, I was trying to think why. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if those issues are why, because we fear it. Because I understand why the nature of Christ, the divinity, the manhood are difficult, the mm-hmm. very difficult concepts to come up with. And he's, our salvation is dependent on the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. Our sanctification, my understanding, would be work of the Holy Ghost. But the distinctiveness with the Holy Ghost and the Father, there's not this large corpus of literature that I know of. There probably is some that's been out there for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. We don't have the Chalcedonian Creed of the Holy Spirit that we talk about. And mm-hmm. I was curious if anybody has any idea why. I was thinking of the tracks of Gnosticism being one of those. Okay. Um, do you mind if I just take that? If I understand you, Jay. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not clear on the question. The Chalcedonian Creed is the historical development, and that, that's why they deal so heavily with Christ. Um, you do start to get some more literature into the Reformation and post Reformation period on the Holy Spirit, um, particularly John Owen. Uh, he does great work in that regard, and so that's someone to go into. And really, the great difficulty is actually. Um, comes up through certain strands, I believe, the Socinians, if I'm remembering correctly, of the trajectory, is that most of the post-Reformation, or Reformation and post-Reformation, were in response to Socinians who were denying key features in the consubstantiality of the Spirit, 
because they didn't understand or they didn't articulate the personhood of the spirit. Mm -hmm. And so that would be a good place to go. And if, if anyone else is interested in understanding the, the person of the spirit, um, is go to John Owen. There's some new uh, reference works being uh, pushed out by uh, Westminster, I believe, that, that are very fantastic. Uh, so that, that's part of it is just the historical trajectory of the issues that came up within the life of the church. And really, within the life, uh, when, tr when tr Trinitarian theology was coming about, um, when you look at the scriptures, for them, they were looking at the, uh, those, who, those persons within the scriptures that they saw, and they saw very easily um, the mere fact that both the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I mean, if there was another character per chance in the scriptures that uh, exhibited the same attributes that uh, talk, uh, had the similar operations, I mean, we could be, I don't know, quadrantian, I don't know. Uh, there's that possibility there, but it's just reflective of reality that there is actually the triune God. Um, so part of the reason that we don't have those developments is just historical, and that's how it came up. And so that's just kind of the difficulty of the story. Well, I understand that, but what yeah. I really want to talk about is why don't I think about it like that? Oh, why don't you? Well, that's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I think as Christians in general, I mean, I think the language of the church, generally we kind of neglect, but we don't speak about the Holy Spirit as much, and I don't deal with that as much. I probably conflate the Father with the Holy Spirit. Why? I don't see God as a spirit, the Holy Spirit, right? Mm -hmm. I, I agree with Dick quite a bit. A good example of that is whenever Ben Rogers came and, and preached, you know, those few sermons that he preached for us, at the end of his scripture reading, he addresses his prayer to the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. I was actually pretty shaken by that because I've never, like, never heard anybody pray to the Holy Spirit before. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. I've, I've thought about that too quite a bit. But, but I think some of that has to do with the structure. I mean, when we do pray, we, you know, as Jesus taught, we do pray to the Father yeah, in yeah. the name of the Son, uh, and we and we do so in the Spirit, mm -hmm. because you know the point of the Son is to bring glory to the Father, and the Spirit is to bring us to Christ and to bring us forward to Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's kind of how they they operate in redemption, and because you know we we have. I think, I think some have, have seen it as, you know, the Father is like the architect, Son executes, and the, and the Spirit, you know, applies. And, and mm -hmm. so... Yeah, that murder is kind of mm -hmm. redemption accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing I like about this is that it's giving me a way to answer mm -hmm. people because I, one of my best friends and dad is a Pentecostal preacher in yeah. a different state, but she goes to a Baptist church because she's married to a yeah. Baptist guy. And, yeah. uh, but one of her biggest complaints about the Baptist the, the Baptist church in general is that we seem to be afraid of addressing the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And and she's right in a way. She's she's correct because we do we we shy away from the scary. Yeah. And I but, think that's probably one of the reasons why we do is because we see a perversion of yeah. that. And right. we, we're, we see it as a ditch we don't want to go into. That, that's my guess. That's just my opinion. And all you guys are crazy. Uh, no, I'm just going to just call it as it is. Y'all are crazy. Y'all need to talk more about the Holy Spirit. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry. Y'all are, are loony tanks. Yeah. Um, I, I do want us to get past this lesson, though. That this is all very good. 
Yeah, well, yeah. I, I was going to say, um, we'll, we're going to get to a lot of this. Um, I've anticipated some of these questions, okay. but... Hey, you just have a new Sunday school uh, lesson. You know, Sunday school teachers on the Holy Spirit. There you go. Yeah, well, yeah I was already thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, one comment, I think as Reformed Baptists, at least, we're pretty big on the Spirit because we're big on regeneration. Yeah. And, yeah. and so we're, we're very active on what the Spirit does in mm-hmm. us. Yeah. Yeah, just uh, I, I don't have any more time to even talk uh, now. Um, thanks, guys. Um, huh? <laughs> I was. I was like, I was thinking. I'm like, I did this to myself. Yeah, we were going to talk about the relationships of the natures in Christ and how and. Huh? Yeah, no, I didn't get there. Were you intending to get to the Lord's Supper today? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you should next time you should not introduce with the whole, we don't have enough time, cast lots of time, just let that happen. Well, I wanted to make sure because it's, it's, this is foundational. I, I mean, I would normally skip over that, but it's foundational to understanding how those two natures relate. Next so. week, let's plan on doing the idiomatum. Uh, or the communicatium, idiomatum, whatever it is, the communication of properties. Mm-hmm. And that's very simple. Um, yes. Let's go over those two. Yeah. Uh, we go from there, we go to the supper. Well, the last thing that I would say, and this is kind of in reference to what uh, Jay said, um, that w- remember, we're not saying that with the, in- with the incarnation, with the hypostatic union, we're not saying that the entirety of the Godhead is assumed, okay? The subsistence of Christ, the person of Christ, assumes human flesh. So when we talk about, when we talk about that Christ possesses the divine nature, he does so because he's, for lack of a better way of saying it, because he has a Trinitarian relationship to the Father and the Holy Spirit, okay? So let's make sure that we... Um, that we understand that it is the person of the Son, the person of the Son, that assumes a human nature. And I've kind of taken that for granted and maybe haven't brought it out as, as well as I should have. But this argument is made over and over in Reformed literature that it is not, the entirety of the Godhead is not being assumed when we talk about a hypostatic union. That's very important to understand because I think sometimes when we think that Christ is truly God, that he that it can be easy to say that, th- that that's the whole Godhead, but that's not the case. Okay, we we're not we're not modalists or whatever it is else that we're saying. So um, he is divine f- fully because of his relationship to the Father for lack of a better way of saying it. Does that help? Okay. I don't know if that's really what was being asked, and I know it wasn't totally, but um, that's why we talk about nature-person distinction as well. Anyway. Sunday school is on Jesus. Yeah. Let's focus on that for the time. Yeah. So next week we'll actually get to the thing that I spent most of my time preparing this lesson for, um, which means that I don't have a lot to do next week, so that's good. But anyway. uh, uh, Jeremy, will you pray for us? Yeah. Great God and Father, you are the uh, Holy Trinitarian God. Uh, this is a complex subject because you are uh, you are God. We're just 
simple, sinful people, Lord, uh, we're unworthy of you, um, yet you sent your Son uh, to die for us, to save us from our own selves. Um, we thank you for our brother who has diligently <clears throat> prepared these lessons. We pray that you might give us uh, clarity of mind and understanding when we're going through these things, Lord. Uh, we pray that you might prepare us to worship you uh, this next hour, Father, that we might be drawn closer to you, Father, that we might uh, go out this week and that we might shine your light and spread your gospel, Father. In your holy name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.